Hello, friends, and welcome. This is my 100th podcast. Hello, friends. Thanks for listening. So, according to Podbean, this is my 100th episode of this podcast. And I wanted to kind of celebrate, kind of do something special. And there's something that I thought I would share with you guys, which really marked a turning point in my spiritual life. And this is an essay that I wrote back in 2013. And it was kind of a summary of the things I had learned in the preceding two years, which really changed my life and transformed my relationship with God. And I like to use the phrase that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 1.15, where he talks about a second experience of grace. And that's really what happened in my life. I had this second experience of grace, this renaissance of the gospel in my life. And so I wrote this document, and I sent it to everyone I knew just to share with them Uh, the joy that I had found in discovering some key truths which I had either missed or had been lost on me or had forgotten. But when I discovered these things, there was great relief and great joy in Christ. And so I want to share this with you. This was kind of a document I wrote to to summarize what I had experienced and what I had learned. And um, I thought for the 100th episode of this podcast, it'd be fun to share this because in many ways, this is the foundation of so many other things that I've talked about on the podcast. So I named this document, God is Pleased With You. And the first section is called, Me? Pleasing to God? Surely not. The desire to be pleasing to God has haunted my adult life. I grew up thinking that God always loves me but that he's not always pleased with me, and that more likely than not, he's actually pretty disappointed with me. I often prayed with desperation, God, I just want to please you. Yet I knew with painful intimacy the innumerable failures in my life. The perfection of God is without limit. How could he ever take pleasure in a life as insufficient as mine? My sacred goal and the deepest longing of my heart would have to wait until the judgment seat of Christ to know whether or not I had attained it. Would I, against all odds, hear the Lord speak to me the coveted words, Well done, good and faithful servant. I banished any thought that I might be pleasing to God, fearful I might be judged even more severely for thinking I was pleasing to God when I hadn't been, or that I might become lazy, or lazier anyway, and sin more or lay up fewer treasures in heaven. Even if it was true, I dared not think it. I could wait until eternity, but I did not want to lose any motivation on earth lest I not finish my race well. Longing, as Henry Nouwen wrote, to be worthy of special praise, I endlessly compared myself to others to see how I measured up. Desperate for others' affirmation, but also determined to be better than those around me, I constantly judged and dismissed the work of God and others. God, I love you more than all of these. Look at all I do. I wanted to do anything I could to prove my love for God. And at the same time, I knew all too well the many areas of my life where I betrayed that love. My endless cycle of determination, enthusiasm, failure, and confession was a relentless reminder of how displeasing my life must be to God. 
It was in the midst of another activity I hoped would make me special and pleasing to God when I encountered an idea that would snowball into a spiritual revolution for me. I was attending a class at Fuller Theological Seminary with about 30 other brothers and sisters from all over the world. We were sharing our stories and praying for one another. After one sister, Grace, shared her story, we began to pray for her. A brother named Kevin prayed, God, I thank you that you are pleased with Grace. I didn't hear anything after that. I knew Kevin did not know Grace. How could he know that God was pleased with her? Was he a prophet? Did he know the secrets of her heart? At the next break, I approached him. Hey, Kevin, I noticed when you uh, prayed for Grace, you said that God was pleased with her. I was wondering, how did you know that? Kevin smiled. Because I know that Grace is in Christ, he said. And if she's in Christ, then she's pleasing to God. Over lunch, Kevin suggested to me that I too was pleasing to God. My years of religious indoctrination had left room for only one response. Me? Pleasing to God? Surely not. I became determined to find out if it was true. After three years of studying God's word and some of my greatest growth in the Lord, I now believe this is indeed true, though I still find it almost too good to be true. The key to my understanding has come primarily in three areas. One, understanding the New Testament phrase, in Christ. Two, understanding the dynamic of spirit, soul, and body in our relationship to God. And three, understanding the New Testament distinction between our life and our walk. This is the best news ever. I am delighted to share it with anyone who will listen. If your desire is to be pleasing to God, and this is the desire of everyone who is born again, but you aren't sure if you are or not, I encourage you to invest the time and, quote, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, end quote, Ephesians 5.10. I don't pretend to be an expert or have all the mysteries of Christ figured out, but it is with great joy I share here what I have learned from God's Word and from others who have helped me in this journey. Section 2. In Christ. The phrase, in Christ, appears 93 times in the New Testament. Eight times are referring to faith in Christ. 23 times are things in Christ like grace, hope, joy, glorious riches, fullness, etc. And 44 times are people, believers, in Christ. Then there are other less frequent occasions where in Christ is talking about other things, for example, Ephesians 3.11, his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. Being placed in Christ is something that happens when we are born again. It is a spiritual reality that is only perceptible in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.13 God is the one who places us in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 2 Corinthians 1.21 Being placed in Christ is eternal. Hebrews 9.12 And does not change. Romans 11.29 it is how we are saved, Ephesians 2.5, 2 Timothy 1.9. Here are some verses from the Bible that highlight people being in Christ. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, 
in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 1 Peter 5.14 Peace be to all who are in Christ. Colossians 1-2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Philippians 1-1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Romans 6-17, greet Adronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who are also in Christ before me. A few examples that might help us better understand what it means to be in Christ. Think of placing a piece of paper in a book. Think of pouring some water into tea or Coke. Think of placing a teacup into a tea kettle. Think of a person being in a country. My favorite example is pouring water into tea because the water becomes indistinguishable, irremovable, and permanently part of the tea. So are we when we are placed in Christ. Of course, the illustration has its limits because we do not dilute Christ the way that water would dilute Coke or tea. Section 3. Two kinds of righteousness. Two men. There are only two kinds of righteousness. Either obeying the complete law of God, Deuteronomy 6.25, which no one can do, So by the law, no one is made righteous, Galatians 2.21, Romans 3.20, or through faith in Christ, Romans 3.22. Our righteousness, self-righteousness, is like filthy rags to God, Isaiah 64.6. Christ's righteousness is flawless, Hebrews 9.14. Which would you like to count on to please God? God only relates to people in one of two ways, either in Adam as objects of wrath under the control of Satan, or in Christ as objects of his love and mercy in Jesus. Romans 5.17, 1 Corinthians 15.22, Ephesians 2.2, Acts 26.18. With God there is no favoritism, Romans 2.11, Galatians 2.6, Ephesians 6.9. The missionary to Africa and the shoe salesman in America are equal if they are in Christ, because their righteousness is Christ's righteousness. No one in the family of God pleases the Father more than any other child of God. Now that really flies in the face of most religious culture. Galatians 2.16 says, For by the works of the law, shall no flesh be justified. And yet, I know for me personally, most of my efforts to please God were, quote, works of the law. Galatians 2.6 in the King James says, God accepteth no man's person. It is not us, our person, that is pleasing to God. It's Christ. Section 4. New birth, new family, new identity. Most Christians have heard something to the effect of God accepts us as sinners, or we're just sinners saved by grace. 
While I understand the thinking behind this kind of talk, technically it's not true. God does not accept sinners. God kills them in Christ and gives them a new life. Romans 6, 4 and 5. When a person is born again by the Holy Spirit, Titus 4, 3 to 7, John 3, 5 to 6, they have a new identity, Son of God, 1 John 3, 1. With the new identity comes new attributes like holy and dearly loved, Colossians 3.12, righteous, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and blameless, Ephesians 1.4. This is why the believers in the New Testament are never referred to as sinners saved by grace, but rather as saints. In other words, holy ones. Romans 1.7, 8.27, and about 50 other times in the New Testament. Section 5. Righteous by Faith We are not holy and righteous because we do not sin. We are holy and righteous because God has made us so by faith in Christ. Philippians 3.9 Jesus became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus did not become sin by sinning. He became sin by having sin imputed to him. In the same way, we do not become righteous by behaving righteously, but by having Jesus' righteousness imputed to us. This is how our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, fulfilling Matthew 5.48. Romans 4, 6-8 says, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now, if you are as righteous as Jesus Is there any reason to believe you are not pleasing to God? 2 Corinthians 2.15 says we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. Section 6. What about when I sin? Does your sin and all Christians still sin? 1 John 2.1, Philippians 3.12 Change the fact that you are righteous? No. Because your righteousness is not based on your performance, and neither is God's pleasure in you. God is never, ever, ever going to count your sins against you. Romans 4.8 Your sins, past, present, and future, sins of commission and sins of omission, have all been assigned to Jesus. God is not counting, in other words, imputing, that is, assigning your sins against you. 2 Corinthians 5.19 Awesome, right? You have been made perfect forever. Hebrews 10.14 But what happens when we sin? Where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness. Romans 5.20-21 Whose righteousness is this speaking of? Ours? No, Christ's, through Christ's righteousness that has been given to us, Romans 3.22, grace reigns. Now this is good news. So this means our performance has no bearing on how God sees us? Yes, 
This is the scandal of the gospel. 1 Peter 2.8 Pharisees hate this because now harlots and publicans who trust in Christ's righteousness enter the kingdom of heaven while those who trust in their own righteousness are locked out. Matthew 21.31 Matthew 8.12 Religious activity gives no one special favor with God. It is God who qualifies us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Colossians 1.12 Does this mean we should live in sin? Of course not. That question is a logical response to the true gospel, which is why Paul addressed it in Romans 6. Anyone who is excited about freedom to sin hasn't been born again. Born again people have a new nature that hates sin and doesn't want to sin. Romans 14, 7-8, Galatians 5, 13. It's an unrenewed mind, Romans 12, 1-2, that causes us to sin and prevents or delays our experience of the new creation that God has created us to be. But that does not affect how God sees us. Our sins affect how we experience God, but they don't affect how God experiences us. The danger of sin is not that it affects God's heart toward us, but that it affects our heart toward God. We are pleasing to God, not because of our deeds, but because we are in Christ. By faith, we become pleasing to God, even as by faith and not by deeds, we become righteous. Romans 10, 1-4. Romans 4, 4-5. When people ask Jesus, What are the righteous works that God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. John 6, 28 and 29. It is our faith that pleases God. Hebrews 11, 6. There are only four places in the New Testament where it talks about God not being pleased with people. Romans 8, 8 to 9 and Hebrews 10, 6, 8 and 38. All of them speak of people who try to relate to God on the basis of their performance in the flesh and shrink back from faith. Section 7. So, (laughs) if this is true, then why does the scripture tell us ways of pleasing God? 1 Timothy 2, 1-3, Hebrews 13, 16, Colossians 3, 20, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. I think it's similar to Paul's charge to Timothy. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. 1 Timothy 6.11 Wasn't Timothy born again? Wasn't he already righteous according to Romans 10.4? Why then would Paul tell him to pursue righteousness? I think it's because that's what righteous people do. Righteous people pursue righteousness. Similarly, the people who already please God are told to do so more and more. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Not that God is at all displeased with us, but he loves to see us walk in the fullness of what he has provided. The Bible also makes it very clear that we are holy. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Peter 2.5 and 9, Hebrews 2.11, Hebrews 10.10. 10, and yet we're also called to live a holy life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 and 7, 1 Peter 1.15. In the same way, the people who please God, those people who are in Christ, are told to seek to please God. Colossians 1.10, Ephesians 
Our sin does not make us displeasing to God because our sin has been dealt with at the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.19. It's simply the loving call of God and our natural response, 2 Corinthians 5.9. I am righteous, so I pursue righteousness. I am holy, so I pursue holiness. I am pleasing to God, so I pursue pleasing God. It's not the pursuit of these things that makes me righteous, holy, or pleasing to God, but the pursuit is the natural result of the rebirth done by the Holy Spirit. Thinking that my works accomplish these things alienates me from Christ, Galatians 5, 2, 4, and 3, 3. Discovering that I'm pleasing to God has not decreased my desire to do the things that God likes. On the contrary, it has stoked it. Section 8 spirit, soul, and body. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says that people consist of a spirit, soul, and body. The Word of God is the source for understanding the difference between soul and spirit, Hebrews 4.12. When we get born again, it's our spirit that's reborn, John 3.3, John 1.13. Our spirit becomes united with the Lord, 1 Corinthians 6.17. Jesus says, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, John 4.24. So God relates to us in the spirit. It is our spirit that is already perfect, righteous, holy, and pleasing to God. Our soul, our mind, our will, emotions, our conscience, our personality is not yet fully redeemed. And of course, neither is our body. So when I say God is totally pleased with his children, I am confident in this because God is relating to us in the spirit. He is a good and gracious God. He relates to us in the realm where he has already perfected us. When God looks at you, he sees the perfection of Jesus because he is looking at your spirit. When we look at ourselves, we see the abundance of our failures and shortcomings and think, how could God be totally pleased with this? That is not how God is relating to us. Romans 8, 8-9 says, Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. Andrew Womack has an extended teaching on this that really blessed me on his website called Spirit, Soul, and Body. Section 9, Living Out of Our Spirit Understanding this dynamic of how God created us has been tremendously helpful for me. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Genesis 2, 16-17 The day Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did not die physically, their souls did not die, their spirits died. And the biblical concept of death is not ceasing to exist, but rather separation from God. In Adam, we all died, 1 Corinthians 5.22. Some may find this to be unfair, but this is God's mercy. So that just as through Adam, death was imputed to us, so also through Christ, righteousness may be imputed to us. Romans 5.12-17, 1 Corinthians 15.45 praise God. 
the invitation of God is to enter into an unbelievably intimate life with Him. He has made a way for us to be one with Him, 1 Corinthians 6, 17, to be partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1, 4, to be righteous, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, holy, Colossians 3, 12, blameless, Ephesians 1, 4, and even perfect, Hebrews 10, 14, all right now, 1 John 4, 17. His call is one of a new life of indescribable closeness to God, to be one with Him, John 17, 21. The way to the Father, the way, is Christ, John 14, 4-10. A new and living way, Hebrews 10, 20. When we learn how to live out of our spirit rather than our best guess of what would Jesus do, we begin to walk in the fullness of what we are called to. We begin to walk in the same manner as Jesus, 1 John 2, 6, doing only what we see the Father doing and speaking what we hear the Father speaking, John 5, 19 and 30. And rivers of living water begin to flow out of our heart, John 7, 38. This life is all by faith from beginning to end, Romans 1, 17. Section 10, Soul Life. Living out of our soul is a recipe for perpetual frustration and dissatisfaction with our Christian life. It won't affect how God relates to us, but we will likely be miserable, unsatisfied, and confused as to why it's not working. When we learn to subject our mind to our spirit, to make it like it was when it was new, Romans 8, 5-6, Romans 12, 2, as Adam was created to live, then we learn to live by the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 We're no longer double-minded, James 1.8 and 4.8. We are transformed, Romans 12.2. As our mind is renewed, the rest of our soul will follow. It has been said that emotions make wonderful servants but horrible masters. Whether joy, peace, lust, pride, or any other of the seemingly countless human emotions, our feelings are powerful. When our feelings are subject to our spirit, they can be awesome. This is how the Bible can make the seemingly impossible demand to rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Watchman Nee helped me understand the command of Jesus in Matthew 16.24 and Luke 9.23 to deny ourselves and take up our cross by highlighting that our cross is different than Jesus' cross. We died with Christ according to Romans 6, 8, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, Colossians 2, 20, Colossians 3, 3, and Galatians 2, 20. So Matthew 16, 24 and Luke 9, 23 is a command to carry the sentence of death in our soul life. That is why it must be done daily so that we may not rely on ourselves. 2 Corinthians 1.9 describes this phenomenon, though not in the context of the soul-spirit dynamic. Section 11. Living and Walking It's in our spirit where we quote-unquote live, and it's in our soul and body where we quote-unquote walk. James 2.26, Galatians 5.25 Stated another way, our quote-unquote life is who we are and our quote-unquote walk is how we think, how we feel, and what we do. These verses refer to our walk. 
Colossians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Ephesians 4.1 and 17, 1 Thessalonians 2.12 and 4.1, Romans 6.4, Colossians 2.6, Ephesians 2.10, 4.1, 5.2 and 15. The NIV does not make this live-walk distinction, but it's there in the Greek. When the scriptures say to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received, or to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, I believe what they are saying is this, now let your behavior match the reality of who you really are, saved, righteous, holy, and pleasing to God. Our walk does not affect how God perceives us, but it affects how we experience God. God is not relating to us based on our walk, otherwise grace is no longer grace, Romans 11.6. God is relating to us based on who we are in Christ. Yet the more our walk reflects the reality that God is fully pleased with us, the more we get to experience what God has already given us and our daily experience will be congruent with reality, Ephesians 2.6. The realities of the Spirit must become more real to us than what we experience with our physical senses. This is what it means to walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 We live by the Spirit. Galatians 5.25, Galatians 2.20, Romans 6.8 This is always true. But we don't always walk by the Spirit. Romans 8.4, Galatians 5.16 God wants our walk, soul, and body to align with our life, spirit, and calling so that we experience the fullness of the life He has given us. John 10.10, and 17.3 Our soul and body prospering pleases Him, 3 John 1, 2-4. When we flourish, God loves that, Psalm 35.27. He is never displeased with us, our spirit, because our sin is never imputed to us. But he is grieved, sad, when we don't experience, that is, walk in all he has provided, Ephesians 4.30. It is important to remember that even this walk is by faith, Romans 4.12, 2 Corinthians 5.7, Acts 26.18. As with our salvation, we experience all of God's provision for us by faith, Ephesians 2, 8-9, Colossians 2, 6. We experience the death of Christ by reckoning it to be so, Romans 6, 11, King James. Faith allows us to manifest spiritual realities in the physical realm. This is how we experience joy, hope, peace, physical healing, and all of God's blessings. To allow our behavior to be dictated by a new set of unseen realities is to walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 4.18, Hebrews 11.1, Romans 4.17, and 8.24. In this way, we walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Romans 4.12. You, Paul writes, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Romans 8.9. Notice he didn't say, you are not in the flesh most of the time, or you are not in the flesh when you're living right, but simply, you are not in the flesh. That is awesome news. We are not in the flesh. We may choose to walk in the flesh, but when we do, we choose to walk in a lie. 
because we are not in the flesh. So John writes to his spiritual children, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. 3 John 1.4 We live by the Spirit 100% of the time, but we're constantly making a choice about where we will walk. We can walk in a lie, or we can walk in the truth. When we walk in the truth, we walk in faith. When we walk in a lie, we walk in unbelief. When we don't believe, we walk in a lie and don't experience everything God has already provided for us. Does that mean that God's word ceases to be true? Of course not. Romans 3, 3-4. We just limit our own experience of it because of our unbelief. In other words, walking in a lie. Hebrews 4, 2, 1 John 1, 6. When we walk in the truth of God's unearned gift to us, we walk in the freedom from sin that Jesus purchased. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, writes Paul, Colossians 2.6. This is walking in a manner worthy of the calling you have received, walking by faith and letting Christ flow out of us. Otherwise, how could we ever walk in a manner worthy of Him? Christ is the only thing in the universe sufficient to fully please God. The way I become fully pleasing to God is through Christ's life and His life flowing out of me, Colossians 1.10. It's no longer me striving to please God. It's me in Christ and Christ in me, Galatians 2.20, Colossians 1.27 and 29. Christ is our life, Colossians 3.3-4. And God is pleased with us, even as he is with Christ. Romans 8, 4 says, We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. According to is defined as in agreement with or on the authority of. Walking in agreement with or on the authority of what God has already accomplished, that is, he made us righteous, holy, and pleasing to him, is to walk, to behave according to the Spirit. The NIV renders Philippians 3.16 like this, Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Section 12. Works of Faith versus Works of the Law It's important to understand the only works that please God are works of faith. Hebrews 11.6 Every other work is sin. Romans 14.23 Scripture clearly teaches there are works that please God. 1 Timothy 2, 1-3, Hebrews 13, 16, Colossians 3, 20. Our works of faith please God. My point isn't that God is not pleased with those works. My point is that God is completely pleased with us right now because we are in Christ. Our actions please God when they originate in faith and love. Indeed, God even invites us on the adventure of finding out what pleases Him. Ephesians 5.10 But thinking that God is displeased and that we're going to make Him happy by working hard is to miss the gospel. God is pleased with us and we get to do things that also please Him. This is to live and walk in Him. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith 
in Jesus Christ, Galatians 2.15. The people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Romans 9.31 and 32. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3.28 Faith produces works that please God. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 But works of the law, in other words, works that we do hoping to earn something from God or hoping to gain His approval, alienate us from God. Galatians 5.4 How can we discern between a work of faith and a work of the law? I would suggest that one proceeds from love, Galatians 5, 6, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, and the other proceeds from many other motivations that are not love, for example, guilt, fear, or selfishness. I would also suggest that we don't try and discern the difference for anyone other than ourselves. God judges motives, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Section 13 word games. So what's the difference between trusting in my own deeds to be pleasing to God and trusting in my own righteousness? I would suggest there is no difference. For many Christians like me, trying to be, quote, pleasing to God is a word game that we've allowed Satan to deceive and condemn us with. The devil is obviously good at twisting and misquoting scripture, Matthew 4, 6. For me, trying to be, quote, pleasing to God was really trying to be justified before God. Many of us are still striving to, quote, please Him as slaves rather than loving and serving Him from the position He has given us as children, Romans 8.15. We have been deceived into thinking that God is displeased with us and we must work hard to please Him. This trickery has kept us from experiencing the very nearness to Him He died to provide. Galatians 3, 1-3 If we are holy unto God because of what Christ did for us, Colossians 3, 12, 1 Peter 2, 9, Hebrews 2, 11, then all of our sins, sins of omission and sins of commission, have all been put on Jesus. All the wrath of God against my sin was placed on Christ. This includes his disappointment, frustration, sadness, etc. toward my sin. All my sin was laid on Christ. I am to God sinless. This is not to say I cannot sin or that sin no longer exists. Sin still exists and sin still hurts me. But it does not affect how God sees me. We are to God 100% blameless. Ephesians 1.4, Jude 1.24, Colossians 1.22. Not only forgiven, but justified. This is why 1 John 1.9 says God is just to forgive us. Notice it doesn't say he's merciful or he's loving to forgive us, but just. It's just because Jesus paid the penalty for those sins and we are holy. If we are holy, then we are pleasing to God. Romans 12.1 Romans 8.1-12 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. When we feel displeasing to God, do we not also feel condemned? 
And yet in Christ, there is no condemnation. Hallelujah. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet when I thought God was perpetually displeased with me, I certainly did not have peace. If I do not know I am pleasing to God, then I still live in fear, fear that I am not pleasing Him. But when I know the love of God, fear is gone because I know I'm not going to be punished for my sins because Jesus was punished for them on my behalf once for all. 1 John 4.18, Hebrews 10.10 If it is sin that displeases God and our sin is not imputed or assigned to us according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, why do we have such a hard time believing we are pleasing to God? Can we believe we are the very righteousness of God, holy, blameless, and yet still think we are displeasing to God? No longer. The one in whom God takes no pleasure is the one who trusts himself and not Jesus. But we are not of those who shrink back from faith, but we will continue trusting Christ for all our righteousness before God. Hebrews 10, 38-39 Section 14, A Total Distrust of Self Ryan Rufus helped me understand Philippians 2.12, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Rufus explained with fear and trembling means a total distrust of self and cross-referenced 1 Corinthians 2.1-5. That says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I was determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now look at the verse in Philippians again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Shortly after this, Paul goes on to talk about having no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3.3 The point is that we do not trust ourselves, but trust in God who is at work in us. Not that we live in fear that God is displeased with us, Section 15, Understanding the Fear of the Lord Sometimes we have trouble reconciling verses like 1 John 4.18, Perfect love drives out fear, or Luke 12.32, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. With Proverbs 1.7 and 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It has helped me to understand fear, like the fear of being punished, is different than the fear of the Lord. Similar to the way we use the words foundation and the foundation of the world. A foundation is one thing. The foundation of the world is something totally different. Perfect love drives out fear. It does not drive out the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 11.2 describes the coming Messiah as having the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And obviously, Jesus was not fearful of being punished by God. 
Psalm 2.11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There is an awe and fear of God that accompanies friendship and intimacy with Him, even as there is a trembling that can accompany rejoicing. Section 16, A Better Covenant Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, Hebrews 7.22 and 8.6. Jesus is the only one guaranteeing this covenant with God. He is holding it together, and we are eternally in Him. In the Old Testament, Israel related to God by keeping the law, Deuteronomy 6.25. Blessings followed obedience, and curses followed disobedience, Deuteronomy 28. The Old Covenant was a ministry of condemnation. The New Covenant is a ministry of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 3.9. The TNIV translates Galatians 4.23-24 this way. His, it's talking about Abraham, his son by the slave woman was born as the result of human effort. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. I am taking these things figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. Our covenant with God is not established or maintained by human effort, but by divine promise. Sadly, many Christian religious traditions have taught us to relate to God on the basis of the new covenant for salvation, but for our day-to-day relationship with God, we have been trained with an old covenant performance-based mindset. This is why so many Christians feel condemned. The old covenant was a ministry of condemnation. Justification by faith and sanctification by works is the unspoken ethos of many Christian groups. But the good news is we are justified by faith and we are sanctified by faith. Acts 26.18 The quote, honeymoon with the Lord never has to end because he is always relating to us with the same love kindness, mercy, and grace that drew us to him in the beginning. If God loved us when we were sinners so much that he would give his son to reconcile us to himself, how much more now that we are reconciled to him are we saved from his wrath and his displeasure? Romans 5, 8-10. God has removed the sin issue, our performance so that we can be one with Him and have the relationship we were created for. Yet many of us return to trying to be good enough with the idea that we are, quote, pleasing God with our efforts, not realizing it's our faith that pleases God. Faith produces works, to be sure, James 2.22, but the sequence is paramount. Hebrews 10.1-2 says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they have not stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Fearing God is not pleased with us is generally just another way of saying we feel guilty for our sins. Far from having, quote, no more conscience of sins, like the King James says, we become even more focused on our failures and shortcomings. The writer of Hebrews contrasts the law with the good things that are coming. 
quote, when this priest, that's Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, 10, 14, and 22. God does not want us feeling guilty for our sins. He wants to remove our sin consciousness. That's amazing. Section 17. Grieving the Holy Spirit. It's important to distinguish the idea of God being pleased with us versus being pleased with our deeds. I do not say the Bible says that all our deeds are pleasing to God. But the Bible does indeed say we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ, 2 Corinthians 2.15. Again, the key is understanding that we are in Christ and God looks at us in the Spirit. Looking at our behavior will always lead us to believe that God is not pleased with us. While I believe God is pleased with us, I don't believe He's pleased with all of our behavior, like when we sin, for example. That's what Ephesians 4.30, grieving the Holy Spirit, is talking about. Happily, God is able to separate the person from their behavior. Our behavior can grieve the Holy Spirit even as He remains pleased with us, who we are in His Son. This is similar to the idea that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Section 18, Hindered Prayers If God is never displeased with us, then why does Peter tell husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way so that their prayers are not hindered? 1 Peter 3.7 Our prayers are hindered not because our sin affects how God sees us, but because our sin affects us. 1 John 3.19-23 says that when our hearts condemn us, we don't have confidence before God. Note, it's not God who condemns, but our own hearts. Sin and all our behavior definitely affects our relationship with God, but it affects it on our side, not His. Section 19. If all Christians please God, then why did God kill Ananias and Sapphira? I think the context of Acts 4, 32-5-11 shows Ananias and Sapphira were not believers, so their sin was still imputed to them and not Jesus. Note in Acts 4.32 it says, Those who believed said that any of the things that belonged to him was not his own. But then in 5.1 it says, But a man named Ananias. Clearly Ananias and Sapphira still considered the things that belonged to them their own, not fitting the description of those who believed in Acts 4.32. In Acts 5.3, Peter says that Satan filled Ananias' heart, also making a strong case that Ananias was not born again. Also, Acts 5.13 talks about how no one else dared join the believers, meaning non-believers. Probably after Ananias and Sapphira died, people realized you were either all in or all out, but just to act like you were in, to look good, was no longer appealing. Paul also wrote of false believers who had infiltrated our ranks in Galatians 2.4, specifically while he was visiting the church in Jerusalem. In addition, the Bible never says that they were Christians. It's also noteworthy that the Bible also never explicitly says it was God who killed them. Section 20. Is boasting really excluded? 
If I am pleasing to God based on my works, then boasting is not excluded. 1 Corinthians 1.31, Romans 3.27-28 But if it is the life of Christ in me and my life in him that pleases God, then boasting is excluded. Much of what we boast about or feel guilty that we can't boast about is how we stack up or don't against other people. Quote, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. End quote. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Paraphrase, Comparing ourselves to one another is stupid. Imagine you were going to meet the top Christian leaders of our day. Or imagine you were going to meet with the original apostles, the pillars of the first church in Jerusalem. How would you approach that meeting? What attitude would you have toward those people? Paul's attitude for a similar meeting catches me by surprise. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Galatians 2.6 Paul encouraged a healthy culture of honor. 1 Timothy 5.17 But he opposed a dysfunctional hierarchy of quote, who matters. 2 Peter 1.1 says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. ESV Our faith is of equal standing as Peter's, who walked on water and whose shadow healed the sick. How can that be? Because it is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. God is relating to us based on Jesus' righteousness, not ours. Boasting is excluded and so is comparison because it is Jesus' righteousness that qualifies all believers that no flesh should glory in his presence. 1 Corinthians one twenty nine. Section 21, Making Christ of No Effect In Galatians 5, 1-2, and in verse 9, Paul writes, Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In 5, 4, the King James Version says, Christ is become of no effect unto you. This was my experience. Christ had become of no effect in my life because I was counting on my deeds to be pleasing to God rather than counting on Christ's performance on my behalf. At the time of the Galatians, the religious people of the day may have said something like, if you really want to be pleasing to God, you should be circumcised. The moment the Galatians fell for it, Christ became of no effect to them. In the religious groups I was part of, it was implied, if not overtly stated, if you really want to be pleasing to God, then you should fill in the blank, attend these meetings, read these books, perform these good deeds. We too are easily bewitched into thinking our deeds give us more favor with God. It simply isn't so. The moment we think we want to relate to God based on our actions, we should do a quick reread of Deuteronomy. Do we really want to try and please God in ourselves? To leave grace to go under the law is crazy, 
and yet under the veneer of, quote, trying to please God, many Christians labor under a new law of church attendance, missionary service, quiet times, and endless religious duties. Section 22. Well done. Every disciple of Jesus longs to hear the Lord say to them, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25:21. In this parable, there are three servants, but there are only two kinds of servants. One, the good and faithful, and two, the wicked and slothful. The wicked and slothful servant was motivated by a fear of his master, rooted in an incorrect understanding of his master's character. The actions that followed the wicked and slothful servant's beliefs cost him more than just his master's praise. Quote, cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. Matthew 25:30. Faithful stewarding of the master's possessions won the master's praise. But the nature of the servant determined what kind of steward he would be. Notice it was the worthless servant who was fearful of displeasing the master, not the good and faithful servants. Also note there were only two options for the servants in Jesus' parable, entering into the joy of their master or being cast into the outer darkness. Jesus said, make the tree good and its fruit will be good. Matthew 12:33. This is exactly what Christ did for us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 He changed our nature. He made us good trees. God gave His Son for us so that we would not have to dread the day that we give an account to God, but so that we could long for it with every part of our being. Revelation 22.17 our nature determines our deeds, not the other way around. 1 John 3.9, Ephesians 4.24 The fruit we bear brings glory to God and proves we are Jesus' disciples. John 15.8 The very nature of bearing fruit should always remind us that it is the excess life of Christ proceeding from us, not our own efforts. The branches of vines and trees do not strive to bear fruit. It happens naturally. Christ said it would happen naturally for us too as we remain, that is, as we stay, we abide in Him. We have already seen how it is God who places us in Christ, 1 Corinthians 130, 2 Corinthians 121. To depart from Christ is to move from living by faith, that is, trusting that we are made righteous by faith in Jesus, to living by works, abiding in Jesus does not happen through spiritual disciplines. Abiding in Jesus happens by faith. Spiritual disciplines are for us to enjoy our relationship with God, but they do not hold or enhance our position in Christ. Section 23. What about eternal rewards? The Bible teaches that God rewards works of faith in love. This is an awesome testimony to the goodness, graciousness, and generosity of God. Not only does He put His life into us so we can experience eternal, abundant life, He also rewards us when we let His life be expressed through us. 
My previous concept of eternal rewards was little more than postponing satisfying my greed and my desire to boast in what I have and do until eternity. Kind of like an eternal retirement plan. I was working hard to have something to enjoy when I got to heaven. My understanding capitalized on my deepest fears, being, quote, poor in eternity, ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ and being assigned a place far from the Lord in heaven. My approach to eternal rewards did not promote love, but played off my worst motives of fear, greed, selfishness, envy, and comparison. Is this what Jesus was after when he told us to store up treasures in heaven? Matthew 6.20 Have I been richly blessed with all spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1.3, only to have lack in eternity? Does God live inside of me now, only to be far from me in heaven if my mansion is not near the throne? Has boasting been excluded for salvation only to be exalted in eternal rewards? 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. To try and get more context on that verse, let's look at some of what Paul wrote leading up to that. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It is out of a place of good courage, complete dependence on Christ and death to self that Paul talks about receiving what is due for what he has done in the body. Was Paul of good courage because of Paul's righteous life? No, Paul counted his own accomplishments as trash, Philippians 3, 4-11. 
Paul was confident before God, 2 Corinthians 3.4, despite having been a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent of the gospel, 1 Timothy 1.13. Because his sufficiency was from God, 2 Corinthians 3.5. Paul was of good courage because he was dead and it was Christ living in him, Galatians 2.20. Note also that Paul says, even when we are, quote, at home with the Lord, our aim will still be to please him. Obviously, we won't be displeasing to him in our eternal home, yet we will still have a desire to please him, even as we are pleasing to him. The same is true now. Here's another scripture in 1 Corinthians 3 that's likely referring to the judgment seat of Christ. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The situation Paul is addressing here may have been similar to modern-day denominationalism and teachers who would add works of the law to the gospel. Today, many still try and adorn God's building with the wood, hay, and stubble of our best efforts rather than the riches of Christ, the grace, wisdom, and knowledge of God. Clearly, not every good deed will be rewarded, Matthew 7, 22 to 23. God is interested in the motive of the deed as much as the deed itself. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, 1 Corinthians 13, 3. God rewards works of faith. Romans 14, 23, Galatians 5, 6, 1 Timothy 1, 4, Hebrews 11, 6. All of our efforts outside of Christ will be destroyed. We must approach rewards and forfeiture of rewards in the context of God's love demonstrated in Christ and the inability of the human heart to do anything good apart from Christ. This passage is also perhaps the ultimate proof that God separates us from our deeds. Praise God, the fire does not destroy the man, but the work of the man. While the man's works may not have been pleasing to God, the man himself is. Though the man suffers loss, he is still welcomed into eternal dwellings, the eternal glory and bliss of God. Like everything God does, the testing of the man's work is motivated by love. 
It is the grace and mercy of God that does not allow this man to carry his wood, hay, and straw forever with him into eternity. It will be sad for those who suffer the loss of what they tried to adorn the church with, even as it is a sad thing not to enjoy the fullness of what God has provided for us now. Yet even in that, God's relationship with us is not based on our own performance. God is still pleased with those who overcome. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Revelation 21.7 1 John 5.1 and 4 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Jesus is not ashamed to call all of his children brothers and heirs with him. Hebrews 2, 10-13, Romans 8, 17. Jesus does not deny that there are positions in heaven, but he also indicates that they have already been assigned, Matthew 20, 21-23, and John 3, 27. All of God's actions are in the context of Jesus and the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 God loves us. God is happy with us because we are in Christ. God wants us to experience the fullness of his joy provided for us in Jesus. John 15:11 He wants us to experience it now and for all eternity. In his presence is fullness of joy and eternal pleasure. Psalm 16:11 Not fullness of guilt and eternal regret. We will have no lack in heaven. Isaiah 25:6 Psalm 34:10 We will all be near to God in a way that we never experienced on earth. Revelation 21.3, 1 Corinthians 13.12, John 14.2-4. And boasting will still be excluded because our eternal rewards do not give us something to boast in, but rather demonstrate the riches of God's grace and kindness for all ages to come. Ephesians 2.7 Ephesians 2, 8-10 is so familiar that most of us have to slow down to mine its depths. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When Christ lives through us, we fulfill our destiny by serving others, even as Christ became the servant of all. Matthew 20, 26-28, 23-11, John 13, 14, Philippians 2, 5-8. We live the, quote, exchanged life, as Hudson Taylor called it. We are dead. Jesus lives, and we share in the riches of his inheritance for eternity. Awesome. Section 24. Leaving the Height of Human Presumption Throughout this journey, perhaps the deepest realization I have had is that I was insane to ever think I could ever please God in the first place. 
to think that sometimes I was pleasing to God and sometimes I was displeasing to Him based on my performance was a ridiculous overestimate of my ability and a profound underestimate of God's holiness, the height of human arrogance and presumption. To think Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to save me, but to please God I must add to His sacrifice is to elevate myself, degrade Christ, and derogate God's provision. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. When am I ever able to say, I am loving all those around me perfectly? or I am walking in perfect faith. We have fallen so far from what God intended our lives to be, we don't even realize the height from which we have fallen. We are so unacquainted with the holy, we think God is altogether like us. Romans 3.10, Psalm 50.21. Ephesians 2.12-13 says, Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise God, we were brought near by the blood of Christ. To think that Jesus' blood brought us near and now we're somehow left to our own efforts to please God is absurd. Were God not relating to me in Christ, I could never please Him. But now, because none of my sin is imputed to me, and Christ is my life, I am pleasing to God, and in Christ I live to please Him. Section 25. Only Believe. I have come to see two major parts in my spiritual development. The first is believing what God says about Himself. The second is to believe what God says about me. Believing is the key. Just believe. When we believe everything God says about Himself and everything God says about us, we will walk in the fullness of all that is provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to make us better. He came to make us new. When God sent Jesus, He wasn't trying to make us better keepers of the law, more obedient. His intention was to fulfill the law in us through His Son, Romans 8.4, to bring all things under Christ, Ephesians 1.10, and to make one new man in Christ, Ephesians 2.15, that new man pleases God because it is a work of God. We participate by faith, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Section 26, Kisses from God. Five times in the New Testament, God tells his people to greet one another with a kiss. Though we justify ignoring this command by pointing to cultural differences, I think we miss a bigger point. Would God command His people to be affectionate if He were not affectionate? 
Is it easier for you to imagine God criticizing you or God kissing you? Do we have room in our perception of God for him to kiss us with the affection of a perfect, loving father? Or are we so sin conscious and intimidated by God that we cannot imagine him showing affection towards us? Are we so anxious about trying to earn his pleasure that we don't realize in Christ we possess all things? If you are born again, you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are pleasing to God. I pray that you will begin to enjoy his love as much as he intends for you to. I pray that you will enjoy him as much as he enjoys you.